Well, good morning. Who are all these people? They all look new to me. I don't know. Um, I've been gone for a couple of years. Uh, been out in cyberspace. Been watching online. If you don't know, my name is Scott Fiddler. I'm one of the elders here at City Life Church. Serve with this man over here, the Jay Ross. And um, we've had to stay away a little bit longer uh, from coming to in-person services because of some family situations. But, you know, Pastor Chris and G are, uh, and a lot of other people are out of town because they're on their way to Israel. In fact, this morning I got a text from G while I was getting ready to, to start the message. Uh, he was on the plane and said he was, they were just getting ready to take off. So that's where they are. And so you get the B team today. You get the second stringers. I've been on the bench and not even the bench here. I've been on the cyber bench and I got the nod, you know. You know what the nod is? The nod is, you know. That's right, the closer. All right, I'll take that. I'll take that. So I'm glad to be here, though. It's great to be here back here in person. I got to tell you, though, I, I am a little bit apprehensive because this is the first large gathering inside I've been without a mask on. And it makes me a little bit apprehensive. And so I'm just going to ask if it's, if it's not too much trouble for the next 30 minutes while I'm speaking, if y'all could just not breathe. <laughs> or if you feel like you have to breathe, just don't direct it toward the stage. It's going to make me a little bit more comfortable. Well, we're starting a new series today. And the name of the series is Genesis, the beginning of everything. And you may say, well, why, why Genesis? Well, Genesis... Um, is the first book in the Bible. And some of the things that we hope to draw out of our time in Genesis is to understand the origins of everything, to develop a biblical worldview, to develop trust in God, to see the promises that he makes, and then see how he carries through on them. And then also, just to set the context for the rest of the Bible. Now, if you're... Um, new to Christianity, uh, maybe you're watching online and maybe you're just, you know, you're just kind of curious about what's going on in a church, you weren't raised in a church. Um, Genesis, uh, we know, was written by Moses. And you may think, well, how do you know that? Because, and how can you trust it? How do you know that it's authentic? I mean, how do you know that it's the inspired word of God? And really the best reason we know this is because there was a man named Jesus who lived about 2,000 years ago and he predicted his own death and resurrection and then it happened, and he believed that Genesis was written by Moses and that it was the word of God. And the reason we know this is because we can read in the New Testament, and when the Jewish leaders, the, the religious leaders of his time, question him and challenge him, he's citing Genesis back to them as scripture. So you can bank on it. It's good evidence that what we're reading is not just some ancient document, but it actually is the word of God. And then Genesis has extra uh, importance as well because it's the first book in the Bible. And if you believe that God is sovereign, that he knows all things, he can control all things, he's all powerful, he can order the events any way that he wants, then you have to conclude that he put the Bible together the way that it is and that he intended on Genesis to be the first book. And the chapter that we're going to read today is chapter one. So this is God's first introduction of himself to the balance of humanity who would only know him first through the Bible. And you've all heard the saying that you can't, uh, you only get one chance to make a first impression or you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. This is God's chance to make a first impression on humanity. Those people who would know him 
through reading the Bible. And so we approach Genesis and should approach Genesis with great curiosity and anticipation. What is it that God wants to reveal about himself that he thinks that we should know and is so important that he puts it in the very first book, in the very first chapter in the Bible? Now, here's what I'm going to do today. We're going to cover Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Genesis 2 verse 4, and that's a lot of scripture. And one of the first rules of preaching is that you don't read long passages of scripture. Am I telling the truth, Daryl? Okay. So that's like one of the first things. And I'm an amateur, so I'm certainly not going to break any of the rules today. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read some of the highlights. Um, I'm not going to read all the verses. But as I'm reading these, and we're not going to put them up on the screen, and I didn't put them up on the PowerPoint because I want you to hear them. And you, can, you may want to close your eyes as I'm reading through them. But as you're listening, I want you to be thinking, what is God revealing about who he is to us in what I'm getting ready to read? And so we're going to start in verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 9, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seeds and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts in the earth after their kind. And it was so. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Chapter 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which he had created and made. Now, the first thing that God reveals about himself, about who he is, is found in the very first sentence, in the very first verse of the first chapter of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And that is he reveals his creativity. God is a creator. We know this from, chapter, from verse one where he says, in the beginning, God created and then he goes throughout this chapter and it shows how he's creating one thing after the other and creates everything that we see here today and we know of. And in the second verse, he talks about the earth being formless and void and that the spirit of God is hovering over the earth that's, that's without form and void. And it's almost like a painter standing before a blank canvas and trying to decide which way he's going to arrange all of the all of the paint and all of the colors 
to paint a picture. And what we think is we think that the world that exists is the only one that could have existed or could have been created. And I don't think that's the case. I think God could, could have created any one of a number of different types of worlds. We just assume that the one that is is the only one that could be. But God was using his imagination. He was using his creativity to decide, you know, why, why did he make grass green? Why did he make water blue? He could have done it any number of different ways. He could have, instead of having water in the oceans, it could have been some other liquid. Who knows? But God was being created. He created things from his own imagination. And then you can look at the animal world. Do you know that there are almost two million different species of animals on the earth? Two million. Here's one of my favorites. We can pull this up. See this guy right here. I see somebody clapping because they know what they said. This is a highland cow. They're found in the Scottish highlands. And Cindy and I first discovered them. We went there on our honeymoon. We've been back five or six times. These animals are amazing. They're cows. They're cattle. But what God did is on this particular cat, uh, type of cow, he gave him hair that's reddish orange. And not only that, he put it on his head so that it drips down in front of his eyes. It looks like a hippie. This is the... This is the creativity of God in action. And you go on the internet and you can look for the most interesting animals in, in the world and you'll just be amazed and you'll just praise God for his creativity. Or you can look at flowers, species of flowers. There are over almost 400,000 different species of flowers. Here's one of them. Anybody know what this is? It's a monkey orchid. That's what, that's what it's called. Again, you can go on the internet, look for the 10 most interesting species of plants, and you'll see things like this. And you thought, I've never seen anything like that. How could that be? And it just shows you the creativity of God. Or you can look around this room, and you can see the creativity of God in the diversity, the racial diversity of mankind. And you can be, if you, you know, work in a large company or companies that are concerned about diversity and inclusion like I do, They'll talk about diversity and inclusion. It's so important that they do. But they have to talk about it really only in terms of functionality. And it's very important because racial diversity is important because everybody brings something different to the table. There's a functional value to it. But when you untether it from God, you're missing out on one of the most wonderful things about racial diversity, and that is it's a manifestation of the creativity of God. You know, most churches don't look like this. You stand up here and see a bunch of white people or might see a bunch of black people or Hispanics or maybe it's a Korean church or whatever. This church represents the creativity, the manifestation of the creativity of God. The second thing that God reveals about himself in Genesis chapter 1 is his integrity. You say integrity, what are you, what are you talking about? What does this have to do with integrity? Well, how about this? Genesis 1.3, God says, let there be light, and there was light. What God said happened. His word is good. And then Genesis 1, 6 through 7, 9, 11, 14 through 15, and 24, I read those verses. Then God said, and then it says what he said, and then it says, and it was so. God did what he said. That's the definition of integrity, which means the opposite of integrity is hypocrisy. And this is why if you're not a Christian, maybe you're here or you're watching online and maybe you grew up in a church but you saw hypocrisy and you thought, I don't want to have any part of that. And you thought that I just don't believe in any of that anymore because of that. It's good. I agree with you. 
what you're feeling, what's resonating in your heart is the image of God in you that says that should not be. But the question you have to ask yourself is why do you even think that a person ought to keep his word? If there's no God, there should be no ought. But the reason there's an ought is because that's the image of God in you telling that people should do what they say they do. They should be who they say they're going to be. Isaiah 55, 11 is one of the most famous scriptures in the Bible. And it says, uh, my word, the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah says, my word will not return void. In other words, when I speak my word, it's going to go out, it's going to accomplish what I say it's going to accomplish. What I say will happen, will happen. It's the ultimate example of integrity. And it's almost like God gets this out on the table in the first chapter of Genesis because it's so important, because it's a basis for our trust in him. It's the reason we can trust him is because we know that he can accomplish and will always do what he says he's going to do. God has integrity. Now, the third thing that we can see about the character of the Lord in this first chapter is so obvious that you can miss it. It's like missing the forest for the trees. And that is God reveals to us his productivity. You say, productivity, what, is, what does that have to do with this, with this passage of Scripture? Well, God created the earth, everything, the heavens and the earth, in six days. Now, we don't have to get into whether it's a literal six days because it doesn't matter. The point is, for us, is the first thing that God reveals himself as doing to us is being a worker. He's working. It's the largest construction project in the history of humanity. And that's what God's doing. He could have opened up the first chapter of the Bible showing him relaxing, you know, whatever. God was relaxing in the heavens and they were having community between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and they were having a good time. Instead, what we see God doing is working because he's a worker. He's productive. Genesis 2, 2, and 3, if there's any doubt about what God was doing was work, it's almost like he caps it off at the end by saying, by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day because in it, he rested from all of his work. Like, do you get the point? He's working. He's busy. He worked six days and he rested on the seventh. And this makes him different from the pagan gods that the first century Christians and the first century Jews would have been, um, would have been aware of, would have been familiar with. Because some of their pagan gods were like, you know, leisurely and having other people doing things for them. That's not the way that God reveals himself. And then we can fast forward to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is healing somebody on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders, the, the religious leaders, they get mad at him because he's a workaholic, I guess, because he's working on Sunday. Only it wasn't Sunday, it was Saturday. But it was their Sabbath. And he healed somebody. And so they're getting on him. You're breaking the law. What are you doing? And Jesus' response is, my father is working until now, and I am also working. God is a worker. He's productive. That's part of the image of God, and it's how he reveals himself to us. Now, here's where it gets interesting. It's verse 26. After God 
has revealed part of who he is. And understand there's more to God than just these three characteristics. We could talk about his justice. We could talk about, we could talk about his love and all these other things that make up who God is. But what we need to be focused on here is why is the Lord, these are the things that he's revealed to us first in chapter one. And so we want to focus on those. But here's where it gets interesting. Verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make a man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God tells us about these characteristics in him. And then he takes those characteristics and he stamps them on the soul of man. So that the image of God and man the image of God and man becomes a reflection of who God is. That people should be able to look at our lives and say, oh, now I get that. I understand more about God. But it's not really like that. And we know it's not like that um, because the image of God has been corrupted in us, right? It's not always clear some of you have a problem with working hard, right? It's just harder for you. Um, you have a tendency toward laziness. Or maybe you say, well, I'm just not very creative or whatever. Um, and so what happens is the image of God ends up being latent in us. It's hidden. Can't see it clearly. And the reason for that is it's been corrupted. It's been corrupted by sin. And Jay's going to talk about this, I suspect, next week. He talks about the fall of man. He'll talk about that in more detail. But let me give you an example of what this is like. Um, Cindy and I live downtown. My wife Cindy and I live downtown. And um, we have a veranda. It's nice. It's got a view towards downtown. And we like to spend time out there. And it's got, uh, the floor is made of stone. These stone that are about like, I guess about shaped like that. And they have some design in them. Some, I mean, they're natural stone. And so they have some pattern in them. Um, but when we've rinsed them off with, garden hoses before, you know, but we've lived there seven years and we never power washed it. So my father-in-law has a power washer, I found out, and I, uh, I said, well, can you, we asked, could you bring it up because I wanted to power wash uh, the Randa, 2300 PSI, you know, some serious, some serious power. Actually, that's not that powerful, but it was powerful enough that when I'm, I'm working on the stone, I, I, I start to see the stone change color and the stones that I thought were black were actually just darker kind of stones but they weren't black and the uh, what had happened and this is enough to really change your view on you know environmentalism or whatever if you've got some some different types of views but living downtown what happens is all the pollution and the exhaust it just rains down on you and we've got a table out there and if you know every if, every week we have to go and wipe that table off and when you wipe it off and look at it it's black you know, it's all that pollution and exhaust that's in the air. And what's happened over our seven years of living there, it's gotten down on that stone. And while you could still see some of the design of the stone, it wasn't until we took that power washer and just removed that whole film, and then you could see it clearly. You could see the brilliance of the stone and what it was intended to be. And that's the way the image of God is in us. It's there, but it's been corrupted. It's been covered up by sin. It's been covered up by all the things that are wrong with us and have uh, tarnished, covered up the image of God. And then what happens though, here's the good news if you're a believer. If you're a believer, what happens is when you get born again, the Holy Spirit comes like a power washer in your life. He starts washing that away, washing that film away. 
toward the goal of what we call sanctification, of making you more like Jesus, so that that image of God begins to shine and begins to become more, more apparent to those around you. And so what we should be able to do then is people become more like Jesus. We should be able to look in their lives and we should be able to see creativity. Now you may say, well, hold on, man, I'm just not creative. But I think, I really believe, based on what we've read here this morning, that we are all made with a proclivity toward creativity. That should be part of who we all are. Now maybe some people have it stronger and they have better skills and all of that. I get that. But we should all be creative. Cindy and I went on a cruise about 10 years ago with a guy named Michael Hyatt. Does anybody know who Michael Hyatt is? Big leader of Christian community. Okay, he's New York Times bestseller. Um, and he had a blog on leadership and, and social pl- media platform and all that. And I followed him for years. And um, he offered, he said, if you're one of the first 12 people to, to email me, then you'll get to come on this cruise. And it was a cruise for creative people. And it had some pretty heavy hitters at that time. Maybe people you don't, you've never heard of now, but like Pete Wilson and Randy Elrod and others. And these are well-known Christian authors. And so Cindy and I, we were one of the 12 that got in. And so we go on this cruise. And I don't remember where, where was it? That's how eventful it was. I don't remember. It was the Caribbean. It was Caribbean. That's where it was. And so we're on this cruise. And, and in the evenings, they would have teachings. And it would be these creative people. And they would be teaching us about, you know, creativity. And one thing I noticed, we, we noticed as we're listening, they kept talking about themselves as, and us, I guess, as well as creatives. You know, like we were a special subclass of people, like the Navy SEALs or the Green Berets or something. That we had something that other people didn't have. You know, and that's the way we tend to think about creativity. But creativity is not just for creatives. It's for everybody because it's part of the image of God. And part of the reason why we think like this is because we have a very narrow, too narrow of a definition of what creativity is. Let me give you a definition of what creativity is. It's the use of the imagination to make or otherwise bring into existence something new, whether a new solution to a problem, a new method or device, or a work of art. And so you can have all different types of examples of creativity. Creativity can be imagining solutions to problems. It can be creating new devices or better processes or better ways of doing things. And yes... It can include art as well, but that's just part of it. Let me give you an example. We just, uh, this is the best example I can give you because we're just hopefully at the end of this pandemic. But in the early 1700s, there was a guy named Cotton Mather. He's one of my heroes. He was a brilliant guy, an historian. I think he spoke six or seven different languages. He was a pastor, a scientist, a renaissance, a true renaissance man. He helped develop a vaccine for polio. Uh, not polio, smallpox, smallpox. And smallpox is a horrible, disfiguring uh, virus, disease. And um, part of the reason he was able to develop it is he actually got the idea from his servant who was from Africa who, had, who said, well, this is what we used to do there is we take part of, this is gross, sorry, part of the pus from the smallpox postules that would pop up on people and then we put it under their skin And it wouldn't be enough to get them sick, but it would force an immunity response in their body. And so Cotton Mather, who was very well read, had also read about a doctor in Turkey who was doing doing the same kind of thing. And so he decided to give it a try because he had enough imagination to think it might work. 
And he did it while he was getting criticized by religious people and he was getting criticized by scientific people on different grounds, but all of them saying that's just not the way it's done, it'll never work or whatever, but he had enough imagination to think that it might work and it worked. And it was the first true vaccine that was introduced in the United States. Fast forward 300 years. We're in the midst of a pandemic and somebody comes up with an idea for an mRNA vaccine. It actually had been around for a while, but it hadn't been perfected. But the idea of mRNA vaccines, which are like the Pfizer and the Moderna COVID vaccines, is that instead of introducing part of the virus into your body, instead, we're going to send something in that's going to send a message to your cell and tell it to create proteins that will trigger a response without you actually getting the virus in your body. So you can't get COVID from an mRNA vaccine. Somebody had the imagination to think of that. Why do we keep doing things the same way? Maybe we can do it a little bit different. And now they're talking about this may be ultimately a way that we can help cure cancer because now we can speak to cells. It's fascinating, but it happened. Somebody came up with a cure. Somebody came up with an idea. Somebody solved a problem because they were willing to think outside the box, to be imaginative, to solve a problem. That's why creativity matters. Creativity matters for other reasons as well. It's a way that we can show other people what God is like or who, he's, who he is. It gives other people a taste of God. Cindy and I lived out in uh, Northwest Houston in Jersey Village for almost 17 years. And I guess I was in my late 40s then. Um, this was uh, a time when we were getting to the point where we thought we can build our dream house. And so I'd started drawing out the dream house on, on a piece of paper and, oh, it was beautiful. It was going to be this like horseshoe-sized house and with... Uh, a master bedroom overlooking a pool with a spiral staircase that went to a library and all. And so we needed more land. We lived in a house at that time. It was about 3,000 square feet. And so we started looking for land even farther out in Northwest Houston. And then at some point I said, you know, we're, we're believers and all. We should probably pray about this and see whether this is really what God wants us to do. And so we decided to pray. And so um, after about a week, we came back together. I said, Cindy, this is going to sound really weird, but I think the Lord's telling us we need to move downtown. And she said, well, you're not going to believe this, but I just heard exactly the same thing. Now, we hadn't talked about this much, but that was like too much to ignore, right? Too much of a, uh, uh, of a coincidence. So we decided to start looking for places downtown. And so we looked for like six months, and there's just nothing of any size. We're thinking about moving to our dream home, and now we're looking downtown, and all the, you know, it's all these small little condos in mid-rises. And so finally... We're praying. We felt like the Lord was saying, don't wait anymore. you got to put your house on the market. And we did. And unfortunately, our house sold the very next day. So now we don't have a place to live. And so we ended up having to buy a place downtown. And the place we bought was 1,200 square feet. And I'm telling you this story for a reason. Because we got into that place. We sold like a third of what we owned. We gave away another third. We put the other in storage. And still had too much stuff for this little place. It had two bedrooms and one living area. And it was so small, we had these two cats. That we, we, when we moved down, we found out they were spending all this time by the front door, and we couldn't figure out why. And then we realized they were looking for the rest of the home. <laughs> they were thinking, I remember this, this was bigger than this, you know? But that place was tiny, but here's the thing. My wife is incredibly creative. Used to be working in interior design, interior decorating. And um, she made that place beautiful. And the only reason I thought of this was because I was just, not even because I was thinking about this message, but we were looking through some old pictures a couple weeks ago 
and uh, I saw one of these pictures. If we could pull it up. This was our, this was our living room in that tiny place. But she made it beautiful. And what happened was we had friends, Christians, non-Christians. We spent a lot of time with people who aren't Christians. Um, and um, a lot of our, most of our friends are not Christians, frankly. And we'd have them over. And they loved coming over. And they could say, well, it was beautiful. That's why we really liked it, you know, and all. But really what they were getting was they were getting a taste of beauty that comes out of the, manif- the manifestation of the creativity of the image of God in man. That's what they were experiencing. That's why it matters. And then there's integrity, right? Integrity in man. We know uh, that we hate uh, hypocrisy, right? We know that, um, that people ought to do what they say. In fact, it's funny, yesterday uh, we were driving, Cindy and I were driving back into Houston on 45, and we came up behind a car, and the car said, don't text and drive. And so then I was, he was driving kind of slow, so I pulled around and passed him, and I look over, and he's texting while he's driving. <laughs> I thought, that's not right, you know? But we need to ask ourselves, why do, we, why do we think that people ought to do what they say? It's because it resonates in us, right? It's that image of God, that latent image of God in us that says people ought to have integrity. People ought to do what they say. When people, people ought to show up at work on time. When you tell your boss that you're going to get him or her something on time, you should get it to them on time because it's a matter of integrity. Jesus said, I think this is why Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't overpromise because it's your integrity on the line. One of the best examples I can give you of integrity is a friend of mine um, named Peter and he's been a friend of mine for now over 30 years. We went to law school together, but he started off in Romania. That's where he was born, and his father was a Baptist preacher there. And they grew up, he grew up under the reign of Nicolae Ceausescu. Now, some of you know, you know your history. You know he was a brutal communist dictator. He hated Christians. He hated Christianity. And because my friend's father was a Baptist preacher, he was never going to be able to go to college. They wouldn't let him. So he immigrated to the United States, was sponsored by a Baptist church in San Antonio, and I met him in law school. He's the person that got me into employment law. God used him to steer my life in a direction uh, that God wanted for me. And uh, one time, I remember, and this is probably around 2000 or so, he called me because uh, he was in the middle of a trial. He was representing an employee who had been wrongfully terminated. And he called me in the middle of the trial, and he said, Fiddler, this is what he, he still calls me Fiddler. He's known me for 30 years. Um, he said, Fiddler, he said, I, I'm in this trial. My guy's been done wrong. He said, but I'm, I'm concerned because the evidence is a little bit thin. I don't know if I'm going to win, but he should win because he was done wrong. He was wrongfully terminated. And uh, he said, I want you to pray for me. And I said, sure, let's pray right now. So I prayed. I prayed that the Lord would uh, work through him to help him be persuasive add persuasiveness to his lips when he's speaking to the jury that the Lord would then move on the jurors' hearts and help them to do the right thing and to do justice. And so we get done praying, and he says, Fiddler, he says, if I win this case, I'm going to give you 10% of my fee. I said, what, Peter? You don't have to do that. All I did was pray for you. He goes, no, no, I'm telling you, I'm going to give you 10% of my fee. I said, well, whatever. That's, you know, you don't have to, whatever. Uh, Well, he calls me back the next day. He says, we won. He says, the jury awarded $400,000. Now, the way he was working, he was working on a contingency fee, which means he doesn't get paid until his client actually gets the money and wins, right? 
And if you're an attorney here, I know, Jeremy, you'll know this, that when uh, you win a case, it doesn't mean that you win the case. You're going to get it paid and, you know, they, start, they get out their checkbook. There's usually an appeal. And so this appeal lasted for two years. And while the case is up on appeal, I forget about it. I mean, I'm busy with my own stuff. I don't, you know, I'm not paying attention. He's not even really talking about it. And then one day I get uh, an envelope in the mail from Peter Coste. I open it up. It's just a blank piece of paper. And wrapped in that blank piece of paper is a check for $14,000. He made a $140,000 fee and he sent me a $14,000 check. So I called him. And I said, Peter, I said, what, uh, what is this check for? I mean, I didn't remember what, you know. I said, why do you send me a check for $14,000? He said, because I told you if you prayed for me, I told you when you prayed for me that I was, if I won, I was going to give you 10% of the fee. He said, I made a vow in front of the Lord. I promised you, and I'm going to keep my word. I said, I can't accept it. He said, no, I'm not going to accept it back. Now, here's the thing. That may sound silly to you. Uh, I didn't think it was. It was $14,000, you know. <laughs> um, but here's the thing it told me about him, that that's what his, that his integrity was worth at least $14,000. There are a handful of people I trust my life with. He's one of them, and that's why. That's the way it should be in our lives. People ought to be able to look at us and say, you know, those Christians, you know, you, I, don't, I don't know, you know, what you believe about this whole resurrection thing or believing that the Bible is inspired by God and all that, but you know what? You can trust them. They say they're going to do something, they're going to do it. And for a world that doesn't know God, it demonstrates who God is. Do you get that? This is why hypocrisy is such a bad thing. You know, it's why we recoil against it. It's why unbelievers do, and it's why we should. Because it teaches people not to trust God. I mean, the image of God is supposed to be in us. People should, it should be a building, we should be building trust with people. If we say that we're a Christian, we should be demonstrating to them who God is, and God is trustworthy. His word is trustworthy. And then thirdly, we've talked about productivity. God is productive. And the thing is, because we're made in the image of God, we are made to be productive as well. That's why we feel so good after a hard day's work. And it doesn't even have to be work that you enjoy. One of the inside jokes about Scott Fiddler is he doesn't really like manual labor that much. <laughs> and this is, my friends, we joke about it. But uh, when we first bought our house, I mean, I would go out and this was before we sold our, we found out there were people who actually did that. You could pay them. <laughs> But I would go out and mow our yard, and I'd go, but I, I was so dumb. I did it in tennis shoes. I didn't realize, you know, if you cut grass and then you walk through it in white tennis shoes, it turns your tennis shoes green, you know. But we, you know, I cut the grass and I'd do all the, the edging and all of that. And I'd come in, I'd be all sweaty and tired. But you know what? And I didn't want to be, you know, a landscaper or anything. That wasn't my job, but I felt good because I'd been productive. I'd done something, I'd worked hard. And then when you look in the Bible, it says that, you know, it says that uh, you shall work six days, but the seventh will remain holy. And we always skip back to that first part. <laughs> we talk about, you know, that Sabbath. We always want to talk about the Sabbath and teach about the Sabbath, and that's great. And the Sabbath is important. I, you know, it's something I've, for 30 years of practicing law, I've got a high-stress job. Cindy will tell you, I work a lot of hours, but I don't work on Sunday. You know, so that's important. But here's the part that I want to focus on is six days you shall work. Leisure is the exception, not the rule. Work is the rule. But work is not the rule because it's supposed to be burdensome. Work is the rule because that's what you were made to do. It's part of the image of God in you. God has made you to be productive. Now, why does it matter? 
Because God could have created us some other way, but he didn't. He created us in his image. Here's why it matters. It's because work is the way that we change the world. Nobody ever changed the world laying on a beach, playing golf, going to the movies. All those things are good. It's not going to change the world. It's through our work. It's through our labor. My father is working until now, and I'm working as well. Work is a good thing. You know why you don't like work? The reason you don't like work, if you don't, and frankly, two-thirds of all Americans are not really satisfied in their job, it's not because of work per se. It's all the things that are attached to it. It's all the personal stuff. It's the relationships. It's the, it's the horrible boss, the micromanager, or the rude boss, or it's the the ruthless coworker who's always trying to get over on you or saying things about you. But it's all the personal stuff. It's all the humanity and all the, the sin and corrupt stuff that corrupts relationships that affects it. But the work itself, if you stripped all that away from it, you have to say, you know what? This is not too bad. Actually, this resonates in me because it's part of the image of God. Now, can you imagine a world where the Holy Spirit has done a lot of work with that power washer and has cleared off that, that dirt and that pollution of sin so that Christians really showed forth the image of God in their lives with regard to just these three things, creativity, integrity, and productivity. Can you imagine what people would say? Christians would be leading in the arts. They'd be the best movie makers in Hollywood. They'd be solving problems in business. They'd be coming up with new inventions, finding new cures to diseases because they were tapping into the creativity that God put in them and they were intended to use. We're talking about origins here. This is how we were created to function. We've already talked about integrity. What if people could trust that if you're a Christian, you say what you're gonna do, you're gonna do it? Or how about being productive to the point where businesses would say, you know, I don't know, I'm not really a believer. I don't really believe in all that resurrection stuff or that Holy Spirit or any of that stuff they talk about. But you know what? I'm going to hire a Christian because those guys work really hard. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen to reveal who you are to us, Lord. So we don't have to guess. We don't have to imagine. We don't have to make up things like the Greeks or the Romans did. Create gods in our own image about how we think you are, Lord. But you've revealed it. And you reveal it right from the start. But Lord, we also thank you that you didn't only reveal it so we can admire you for it, Lord. But you decided to stamp that same image in us. And Lord, I pray as we go forth today... Lord, that we're able to begin to connect with those characteristics, Lord, that you implanted in our soul, that we know are there, that resonate. Lord, when we see integrity and productivity and creativity, Lord, they resonate in our hearts because we know that's what we were created to be, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit, for those of us who are Christians, Lord, that your Holy Spirit, Lord, begin to power wash away that the muck, the sin, the pollution, Lord, that keeps others from seeing that, keeps us from connecting with who we are. And Lord, for those who don't know you, Lord, 
but Lord, that they identify with what I'm saying, Lord, that they recognize that there's a creativity in them, Lord, they recognize that they desire integrity and they want to be productive, Lord. Lord, you continue to draw them to you so they can know who you are in a personal way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.